History of England, Chapter 13, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England, From the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter 13, Part 2. Edinburgh, the seat of government, was in a state of anarchy. The castle which commanded the whole city was still held for James by the Duke of Gordon. The common people were generally Whigs. The College of Justice, a great forensic society composed of judges, advocates, writers to the signet, and solicitors, was the stronghold of Toryism, for a rigid test had during some years excluded Presbyterians from all the departments of the legal profession. The lawyers, some hundreds in number, formed themselves into a battalion of infantry, and for a time effectually kept down the multitude. They paid, however, so much respect to William's authority, as to disband themselves when his proclamation was published. But the example of obedience which they had set was not imitated. Scarcely had they laid down their weapons, when covenanters from the West, who had done all that was to be done in the way of pelting and hustling the curates of their own neighbourhood, came dropping into Edinburgh, by tens and twenties, for the purpose of protecting, or if need should be, of overawing the convention. Glasgow alone sent four hundred of these men. It could hardly be doubted that they were directed by some leader of great weight. They showed themselves little in any public place, but it was known that every cellar was filled with them, and it might well be apprehended that, at the first signal, they would pour forth from their caverns, and appear armed round the Parliament-house. It might have been expected that every patriotic and enlightened Scotchman would have earnestly desired to see the agitation appeased, and some government established which might be able to protect property, and to enforce the law. An imperfect settlement which could be speedily made might well appear to such a man preferable to a perfect settlement which must be the work of time. Just at this moment, however, a party, strong both in numbers and in abilities, raised a new and most important question, which seemed not unlikely to prolong the interregnum till the autumn. This party maintained that the estates ought not immediately to declare William and Mary king and queen, but to propose to England a treaty of union, and to keep the throne vacant, till such a treaty could be concluded on terms advantageous to Scotland. It may seem strange that a large portion of a people, whose patriotism, exhibited often in a heroic, and sometimes in a comic form, has long been proverbial, should have been willing, nay impatient, to surrender an independence which had been, through many ages, dearly prized, and manfully defended. The truth is, that the stubborn spirit which the arms of the Plantagenets and Tudors had been unable to subdue, had begun to yield to a very different kind of force. Custom-houses and tariffs were rapidly doing what the carnage of Falkirk and Halidon, of Flodden and of Pinky had failed to do. Scotland had some experience of the effects of a union. She had, near forty years before, been united to England on such terms as England, flushed with conquest, chose to dictate. That union was inseparably associated in the minds of the vanquished people with defeat and humiliation, and yet even that union, cruelly as it had wounded the pride of the Scots, had promoted their prosperity. 
Cromwell, with wisdom and liberality rare in his age, had established the most complete freedom of trade between the dominant and the subject country. While he governed, no prohibition, no duty impeded the transit of commodities from any part of the island to any other. His navigation laws imposed no restraint on the trade of Scotland. A Scotch vessel was at liberty to carry a Scotch cargo to Barbados, and to bring the sugars of Barbados into the port of London. The rule of the protector, therefore, had been propitious to the industry and to the physical well-being of the Scottish people. Hating him and cursing him, they could not help thriving under him, and often, during the administration of their legitimate princes, looked back with regret to the golden days of the usurper. The restoration came, and changed everything. The Scots regained their independence, and soon began to find that independence had its discomfort as well as its dignity. The English Parliament treated them as aliens and as rivals. A new navigation act put them on almost the same footing with the Dutch. High duties, and in some cases prohibitory duties, were imposed on the products of Scottish industry. It is not wonderful that a nation eminently industrious, shrewd, and enterprising, a nation which, having been long kept back by a sterile soil and a severe climate, was just beginning to prosper in spite of these disadvantages, and which found its progress suddenly stopped, should think itself cruelly treated. Yet there was no help. Complaint was vain. Retaliation was impossible. The sovereign, even if he had the wish, had not the power to bear himself evenly between his large and his small kingdom, between the kingdom from which he drew an annual revenue of a million and a half, and the kingdom from which he drew an annual revenue of little more than sixty thousand pounds. He dared neither to refuse his assent to any English law injurious to the trade of Scotland, nor to give his assent to any Scotch law injurious to the trade of England. The complaints of the Scotch, however, were so loud that Charles, in 1667, appointed commissioners to arrange the terms of a commercial treaty between the two British kingdoms. The conferences were soon broken off, and all that passed while they continued proved that there was only one way in which Scotland could obtain a share of the commercial prosperity which England at that time enjoyed. The Scotch must become one people with the English. The Parliament which had hitherto sat at Edinburgh must be incorporated with the Parliament which sat at Westminster. The sacrifice could not but be painfully felt by a brave and haughty people who had, during twelve generations, regarded the southern domination with deadly aversion, and whose hearts still swelled at the thought of the death of Wallace and the triumphs of Bruce. There were doubtless many punctilious patriots who would have strenuously opposed a union, even if they could have foreseen that the effect of a union would be to make Glasgow a greater city than Amsterdam, and to cover the dreary Lothians with harvests and woods, neat farmhouses and stately mansions. But there was also a large class which was not disposed to throw away great and substantial advantages, in order to preserve mere names and ceremonies, and the influence of this class was such that, in the year 1670, the Scotch Parliament made direct overtures to England. The King undertook the office of mediator, and negotiators were named on both sides, but nothing was concluded. The question, having slept during eighteen years, was suddenly revived by the revolution. Different classes, impelled by different motives, concurred on this point. 
with merchants eager to share in the advantages of the West Indian trade, were joined active and aspiring politicians, who wished to exhibit their abilities in a more conspicuous theatre than the Scottish Parliament House, and to collect riches from a more copious source than the Scottish Treasury. The cry for union was swelled by the voices of some artful Jacobites, who merely wished to cause discord and delay, and who hoped to attain this end by mixing up with the difficult question which it was the especial business of the Convention to settle, another question more difficult still. It is probable that some who disliked the ascetic habits and rigid discipline of the Presbyterians wished for a union as the only mode of maintaining prelacy in the northern part of the island. In a united Parliament the English members must greatly preponderate, and in England the bishops were held in high honour by the great majority of the population. The Episcopal Church of Scotland, it was plain, rested on a narrow basis, and would fall before the first attack. The Episcopal Church of Great Britain might have a foundation broad and solid enough to withstand all assaults. Whether in 1689 it would have been possible to effect a civil union without a religious union may well be doubted, but there can be no doubt that a religious union would have been one of the greatest calamities that could have befallen either kingdom. The union accomplished in 1707 has indeed been a great blessing both to England and to Scotland, but it has been a blessing because, in constituting one state, it left two churches. The political interest of the contracting parties was the same, but the ecclesiastical dispute between them was one which admitted of no compromise. They could therefore preserve harmony only by agreeing to differ. Had there been an amalgamation of the hierarchies, there never would have been an amalgamation of the nations. Successive Mitchells would have fired at successive Sharps. Five generations of Claverhouses would have butchered five generations of Camerons. Those marvellous improvements which have changed the face of Scotland would never have been effected. Plains now rich with harvests would have remained barren moors. Waterfalls which now turn the wheels of immense factories would have resounded in a wilderness. New Lanark would still have been a sheep-walk, and Greenock a fishing hamlet. What little strength Scotland could, under such a system, have possessed, must, in an estimate of the resources of Great Britain, have been, not added, but deducted. So encumbered, our country never could have held, either in peace or in war, a place in the first rank of nations. We are unfortunately not without the means of judging of the effect which may be produced on the moral and physical state of a people by establishing, in the exclusive enjoyment of riches and dignity, a church loved and reverenced only by the few, and regarded by the many with religious and national aversion. One such church is quite burden enough for the energies of one empire. But these things, which to us, who have been taught by a bitter experience, seem clear, were by no means clear in 1689, even to very tolerant and enlightened politicians. In truth, the English low churchmen were, if possible, more anxious than the English high churchmen to preserve episcopacy in Scotland. It is a remarkable fact that Burnet, who was always accused of wishing to establish the Calvinistic discipline in the south of the island, incurred great unpopularity among his own countrymen by his efforts to uphold prelacy in the north. He was doubtless in error, but his error is to be attributed to a cause which does him no discredit. His favourite object, 
an object unattainable indeed, yet such as might well fascinate a large intellect and a benevolent heart, has long been an honourable treaty between the Anglican Church and the Nonconformists. He thought it most unfortunate that one opportunity of concluding such a treaty should have been lost at the time of the Restoration. It seemed to him that another opportunity was afforded by the Revolution. He and his friends were eagerly pushing forward Nottingham's Comprehension Bill, and were flattering themselves with vain hopes of success. But they felt that there could hardly be a comprehension in one of the two British kingdoms, unless there were also a comprehension in the other. Concession must be purchased by concession. If the Presbyterian pertinaciously refused to listen to any terms of compromise where he was strong, it would be almost impossible to obtain for him liberal terms of compromise where he was weak. Bishops must therefore be allowed to keep their sees in Scotland, in order that divines not ordained by bishops might be allowed to hold rectories and canonries in England. Thus the cause of the Episcopalians in the north, and the cause of the Presbyterians in the south, were bound up together in a manner which might well perplex even a skilful statesman. It was happy for our country that the momentous question which excited so many strong passions, and which presented itself in so many different points of view, was to be decided by such a man as William. He listened to Episcopalians, to Latitudinarians, to Presbyterians, to the Dean of Glasgow, who pleaded for the apostolical succession, to Burnet, who represented the danger of alienating the Anglican clergy, to Carstairs, who hated prelacy with the hatred of a man whose thumbs were deeply marked by the screws of prelatists. Surrounded by these eager advocates, William remained calm and impartial. He was indeed eminently qualified by his situation, as well as by his personal qualities, to be the umpire in that great contention. He was the king of a prelatical kingdom. He was the prime minister of a Presbyterian republic. His unwillingness to offend the Anglican Church, of which he was the head, and his unwillingness to offend the Reformed Churches of the continent, which regarded him as a champion divinely sent to protect them against the French tyranny, balanced each other, and kept him from leaning unduly to either side. His conscience was perfectly neutral, for it was his deliberate opinion that no form of ecclesiastical polity was of divine institution. He dissented equally from the school of Laud and from the school of Cameron, from the men who held that there could not be a Christian church without bishops, and from the men who held that there could not be a Christian church without synods. Which form of government should be adopted was in his judgment a question of mere expediency. He would probably have preferred a temper between the two rival systems, a hierarchy in which the chief spiritual functionaries should have been something more than moderators and something less than prelates. But he was far too wise a man to think of settling such a matter according to his own personal tastes. He determined, therefore, that, if there was on both sides a disposition to compromise, he would act as mediator. But, if it should prove that the public mind of England and the public mind of Scotland had taken the ply strongly in opposite directions, he would not attempt to force either nation into conformity with the opinion of the other. He would suffer each to have its own church, and would content himself with restraining both churches from persecuting nonconformists, and from encroaching on the functions of the civil magistrate. The language which he held to those Scottish Episcopalians who complained to him of their sufferings, and implored his protection, was well weighed and well guarded, but clear and ingenuous. 
He wished, he said, to preserve, if possible, the institution to which they were so much attached, and to grant at the same time entire liberty of conscience to that party which could not be reconciled to any deviation from the Presbyterian model. But the bishops must take care that they did not, by their own rashness and obstinacy, put it out of his power to be of any use to them. They must also distinctly understand that he was resolved not to force on Scotland by the sword a form of ecclesiastical government which she detested. If, therefore, it should be found that prelacy could be maintained only by arms, he should yield to the general sentiment, and should merely do his best to obtain for the Episcopalian minority permission to worship God in freedom and safety. End of chapter 13, part 2 Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 7, 2008 in San Diego, California.